Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to British Indie Film Club, a new limited podcast series brought to you by Biffa and Little White Lies magazines, where we meet some of the most exciting voices from the British independent film world. I'm Leila Latif. And I'm Karis Aldridge. And today we are going to be speaking to actress Tamara Lawrence about her career on stage and screen and her favourite British film. So as previous listeners already know, each episode will be meeting a talented actor or director to find out how they got their break in film, what they love most about their profession and what the future holds. To celebrate Biffa's 25th birthday, we'll also be asking our guests to pick a film from the Biffa archives to discuss, either a cult classic or a contemporary gem from the past 25 years. For those of you who are regular listeners to Truth and Movies, you may recognise me. I'm film critic, broadcaster and columnist Leila Latif. And I'm Karis, a film sales exec and podcast host. Over the last seven years, I've worked across film sales, marketing and distribution on UK independent films. And I've also participated in the Creative England producing course supporting up and coming UK producers. And yeah, speaking of up and coming people, we've got a very, very exciting up and comer on the programme this week, actress Tamara Lawrence. I actually first became aware of her in Mike Bartlett's King Charles III back in 2017, which was kind of a play. And then it was like on the BBC as a TV movie. And it was kind of set where King Charles ascends to the throne and it goes pretty badly wrong pretty quickly. But Tamara plays a black woman that Prince Harry falls in love with and leaves the royal family behind to start a life with. So if anyone needs their lottery numbers predictive give Mike Bartlett a call I mean what a wild guess to get right <laughs> also relatively predictable but yeah Tamara also won a Biffa recently for joint lead with Letitia Wright for The Silent Twins which is a really interesting experimental film based on this like real life story of June and Jennifer Gibbons a pair of twins and not to give it away but the story itself really is like stranger than fiction I mean even this year for the Biffers the category was was tough. I mean, definitely Tamara and Letitia was more than deserving of this, but they had some difficult competition. I mean, you obviously had Paul Meskel and Frankie for After Sun. You had Darren McCormack and Emma Thompson. I think all of those have been great recent joint lead performances. Leo and Kate and Titanic. I mean, that's pretty iconic, no? <laughs> oh, I, you know, the first place that my head went was uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain. So true, yeah. But- that's like, a great one. You know, just like when two actors almost just feel like they're in like an intricate 
dance with one another, like that everything that the other does somehow enhances what the other person does. I mean, just acting can so often be just like collaborative, but then so often it does seem like it's like about an ego and I'm getting my Oscar speech in and I want to kind of take up the screen competitive. So when when you see two people that are just being very generous to one another, it really is, I think, quite magical. Absolutely. And I think it's really satisfying as an audience member to watch that as well. And obviously Tamara and Letitia do this perfectly. I think, you know, the nature of the story, them playing twins, it perfectly embodies the joint lead. They kind of really perfectly balance and mirror one another's performance and convince us that they are two sides of one soul. They almost create this, their own language. And it's, yeah, it's a really, it's a great performance from both of them. And it, it does, it's such a strange real life story. So like the fact that kind of like the film gets even kind of more experimental, even kind of like more unusual with it. I was, uh, yeah, no, I, I got to say I was particularly impressed. But I mean, one of the things that I actually really loved about, you know, this year's Biffers, because I believe this was a change that happened very recently, was just this kind of reimagining of acting categories, because that sort of like not playing to your own ego, being very generous with your co-star or something, that's not necessarily what's going to when you like an Oscar or make you the most starry thing that song almost comes generally from like taking up the most space yeah I think the idea for them to go genderless was a great a great one that I fully fully back and I think hopefully will be a bit of a yardstick for the rest of the industry as well to kind of follow suit we'll see but I think it's great that we've been able to kind of move in this direction and as you say it it really helps to platform I mean specifically yeah joint lead I think is such a great example and so happy that we have tomorrow on the podcast because it's a perfect example of an award or or a performance that might not have been recognised otherwise, I think. Yeah, I guess the kind of the idea that people did stick to these kind of like very gendered, like, oh, we have to have the actor and the actress is, you know, if we just kind of make them into one, then women are going like not going to be kind of like served, that everything's just going to become too dominated. We need to kind of create this space where women's performances can be independently assessed i mean to be fair not the case in the biffers at all this year because it was like joint lead went to this pair of incredible women both best actor and both supporting actor which were of mixed gender went to women as well so i think we are kind of maybe a little bit like underestimating voting bodies to assume that like if we don't make things specifically for women that like nobody will ever get a look in yeah it's definitely the biggest piece of feedback that you always get when it comes to yeah making the awards genderless and I mean the most recent example is the fact that in the best director category there were no women directors nominated and of course there are so many unbelievable female directors um, who are more than deserving to to be nominated in that category so was that the Oscars at the Oscars yeah yeah yeah. so I, I get it and I think that you're completely right I think one of the more important things is that, like, if we maintain these kind of, like, super gendered categories of things, we're already missing out on, like, loads of people. I mean, we've got to think, particularly in television, there's so many people, I'm thinking Liv Houston from Yellow Jackets, you know, there's a few more, uh, what's the, is it Bella Ramsey? Bella Ramsey, The Last of Us, who gave an incredible performance, who identifies as non-binary. There's a lot of non-binary artists at the moment who are doing incredible work and one of my first thoughts is always how is this going to be translated when it comes to the awards because 
yeah, we're still kind of behind in that sense. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I do hope that the Emmys, the Globes, everyone is kind of really thinking about him and having it at the forefront of their mind because what are you going to do? But yeah, it, it does just also feel like really the nature of an ensemble is often so underserved. Like if you don't have that one big splashy person doing a monologue, then, you know, what do you end up with? But like, you know, obviously something that like what a Christopher Guest film pulls off, like what so many Kent Loach films pull off so many of these films where it's just like the chemistry, the balance between everyone else else feels like it's actually almost harder to accomplish than just somebody doing this sort of booming monologue <laughs> that is like ripe for a right for an awards clip and i think it's often something that really does come out across in like independent cinema in particular because there is just like a love for a craft a little bit letting go of the ego and it's just like we are all in here together in service of the film absolutely uh, so yeah, let's hear Tamara's thoughts on her incredible performance and where her career is going. How are you? How are you doing? I wanted to run up to you at the awards, but I couldn't spot you. But um, yeah, I was on the juries this year. And um, yeah, we're so excited. that I mean, it was just so unanimous for you guys to win. It was great. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I didn't know you were there. That's cool. Yeah, I've been I've been cool. Yeah, having a nice year so far. So let's start right at the very beginning. Where did this all start? When do you remember first wanting to become an actor? Um, I remember first wanting to become an actor. I know that by year three, I was pretty set on it. I don't I, I don't really remember. I remember kind of being on stage in primary school, definitely, and, and feeling uh, excited about that. But I, it, I don't think it was kind of one light bulb moment or anything, but definitely from as early as eight years old, I was, uh, yeah, I, I was sure that this was what I wanted to pursue. And like, it's, it kind of seems from early on that there's like an ambition to like, reach kind of quite a high level because you went to RADA which is famously like impossible to get into uh, like what was that experience like is that training still like very valuable to you um yeah definitely the training is invaluable not just in the sort of technical way obviously every institution is not without its 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 faults but I think what I took from RADA was I think on an interpersonal level I think I got I, I gained a lot of amazing friends that I'm still in contact with and um learning a lot from I think also there were teachers there that helped me to sort of revolutionize a kind of hidden shame that I had around being an actor because I think I don't know I'm sure maybe people who want to be artists in families where your parent is sort of maybe or parents are are, are sort of encouraging you to do something else it, I think even though there was like a part of me that was very belligerent there was another part of me that was a bit like oh you know but I, I understood that even though I was proud of wanting to be an actor I could sort of see the look in people's faces when you tell someone that that's what you want to do <laughs> um I, it, yeah it was really really funny it's like when you when you're young and you're like I want to be an actor people are like oh okay all right yeah 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 but what else you know but what do you really want to do it was kind of the um the, the vibe I used to get a lot like what's your plan b or what's your backup or what are you going to study while you <laughs> do and I was like so so I think I got from the training a sort of understanding in the in like of the humanity of being an artist. I think 
I would never put what we do above some like public services and other other types of career. But I felt like um, my core teachers very much like hammered home the, the honor in being a storyteller. Also, the, the power in it, like actually how stories do have the power to change the world and, and powerful films and powerful plays have shifted consciousnesses so I think I I got I got that from the training as well as the the technical things that I definitely still still use as well yeah so from then from that point on because I understand you know being that kind of classical training a lot of it is kind of geared towards the stage so was kind of the idea that you were always going to you know go to theatre or you know like you have done that you were going to be doing stage and doing screen and tv and films and that sort of thing I think I just wanted to to work really. I, I, I previously preferred stage, I'd say, just be, because, and we didn't have a lot. I think there's probably more now, but there was only maybe one or two terms of camera. I think it's probably a department that has grown since when I was there. But um, I think fundamentally the core of the technique is is the same and is is applicable to both. But I think the um, the different mediums demand different things from you mm. so uh, I, I think there's something useful about stage and the practice of that the meat of that rehearsing it's very hard it's very physically hard doing this you need a lot of stamina and um and so I am grateful that I got the chance quite early on when I graduated to do a few plays which were really exciting and challenging in different ways and I, I, learned, I learned a lot from but yeah, I think having the opportunity to do more screen in later years, I now feel slightly more curious about the medium of film and filmmaking in general, also like behind the scenes, because I think it's, yeah, it's really, it's really special. And also the reach that it can have as well. I think, yeah, I feel like bold over that I can watch Korean film, I can watch South American film, I can, you know, whereas I can't partake in their theatre in the same way. So I like the internationality and the universality of um of screens I think that's more my preference Mm -hmm. now then um I mean it's interesting because you talked a little bit about shame and like you know that you needed something like legitimizing through that process you know you're, you're kind of coming in as a young actor and it seems like very early on you've got the kind of the prestige of Brada you get these amazing roles in the Royal Court National Theatre the reviews are amazing like I'm just wondering for you as an actor does that kind of chef your perspective as um, your success the sort of career you're going to have and then give you a bit of more confidence to kind of maybe make some more creative choices I suppose Mm, that's a very interesting question uh, I don't think yeah so weird my heart's beating really fast <laughs> but I don't I don't think um I don't I don't think it did I don't think it it has I'm trying more it's something that my friends say to me a lot like everything you just said they're like you know you've done this and you've done this and you've done this like why can't you be confident in your ability but I think it's just you know I think just life is always running concurrent to this Thing and I'm not an actor I'm, I'm a person and in my personhood I actually I'm not affirmed by those things like I don't think I'm not a better actor because I've gone to RADA or got or, or been worked at the national it's just I've just been fortunate because of my opportunities but I think now like now I am trying to take more agency and, and ownership over what I have capacity to do and understand that 
moving forward, the creative choices I want to make in light of what I've done in the past are quite are quite specific because um, it's so many things that I'd, I'd, I'd like to do, which is clarifying for me the things that I don't want to do. And I think because I've done such amazing things in terms of the opportunities I've been afforded, I, I, it set the bar quite high for me, which I, I mean, I'm very, very, very lucky. I think it's important to remember that, that you're not that success or whatever it looks like from the outside is not just because you're better than other, it's not because you're better than other people it's just like it's like it's a lot there's a lot of things there's an intersection of timing and all of these things so I think like, I, I feel more and more I'm trying to be more empowered to be proud of myself basically I'm trying to be proud of myself yeah hopefully yeah I can keep working with some amazing people because I've been super super blessed so far to be honest so yeah thank you for reminding me of that but it's interesting that you kind of quite modest about your own part in it but then you talked about the power of storytelling and its ability to change the world is that are those the sorts of stories that you're most interested in telling well yeah I I think the stories I like to tell are ones that um yeah sort of provoke alternative thought essentially I I or or kind of like reveal something about the the character or the world like that give kind of like a I like people that are flawed I like people that are um yeah that that change a lot actually that go on like a quite a, a big arc and have some sort of like revelation but yeah in terms of stories I think I love comedy I, I actually really really love comedy but Everyone thinks I'm a very serious guy. Like I don't really do that many funny things. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean that's probably you know partially partially my fault as well. But I, I um, I'm open. I'm open to anything. Moving moving forward, I'd love to do more horror, more just like any anything really. It doesn't always have to be deep and meaningful necessarily. But I just got to believe in the project because at some point you have to talk about it, and it's hard to it's hard to back things that you don't really care about. So as long as I care about it, whatever it is, like I'm, I'm open. And i got to say at my end, you can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's very true. That's very true. But yeah, when it comes to the silent twins and like, congrats again on winning a Biffa for joint lead, no one else came close to define what a joint lead is potentially like, is that how you saw it as kind of a single entity told through two actors Mm, um yeah in in a in a way it's not often that you get the chance to play a twin so and identical twins at that and especially those identical twins and the nature of how intertwined their relationship was in many ways it kind of was one body in two spaces or, or a shared mind for a lot of their childhood and 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 teenagers and stuff like that but i think we had to obviously figure out how to honor our separate processes and as 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 actors but we definitely understood that you had that there needed to be a different way of working to find more unity and common ground for for this particular story so yeah I think it was just like really we were really blessed to have the this new category come out the same year as this kind of film because it's one of those ones that it is very like the two characters are not yeah, they are they are equal on screen like you can't there's not one that's more important or one that's like you know hopefully not perceived as like more evil or more benevolent than the other and so I, I'm glad that people sort of took that were affected by like the strength of the the relationship 
yeah. In, in, in terms of processes, you know, Letitia Wright is also astonishing in her part. Um, how, I mean, what was the actual process of you guys becoming in sync and kind of creating these really compelling twins? Um, yeah, we've had, we had a lot of help. We just had, we had a lot of resources. There was, so was, uh, we, we, we read the book together with the director over lockdown and broke down each chapter. So we had quite a clear lens into their psyche through the diary entries and everything and then there was also movement dialect costume those departments were all working to to help us look and feel more similar which was very useful and then also just be you know being on set I think there's a lot of things that come even from just being in the 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 bedroom that they they grew up in and and finding the dynamics like how you relate to each other in the context uh, that they uh, existed in but and and the nature of the shooting is like you spend every day together on set and then you start to spend time together offset as well so I think we towards the end of the shoot that that sort of um, sisterhood came more naturally than maybe it did at the beginning um I mean and it's quite a surprising film in many ways I kind of you know I I, I knew a little bit the story of these of these two women I think I'd listened to a NPR podcast about them but I I, I was quite surprised that there was stop motion and stuff in this I mean like was that something exciting for you that like real unbridled creativity yes yes completely and that's a testament to the amazing team uh, the the Polish team, their ingenuity and their hard work, and the and our, obviously the, the the director that we had being such um, a visionary and being so constantly curious about how to incorporate more of who the twins were as artists into the piece, and so including stop motion and the DJ booth at the beginning, and and Dr. Palenberg, Bobby's story that ran parallel to their story, that was all their work. So the DJ booth was really them. The dolls and the stories they told through the dolls, that was all them. The Dr. Palenberg story was was from Jennifer's book. Um, and so I, I think I think it was Aga's way of of you know pay, paying homage to the twins as as writers. Um, and you know it, it, it's kind of almost like a sad thing to always bring it back to when you know both women of color but there is kind of something with a film like this where it's refreshing to see a different type of Britishness because the cliche about British film is it's sort of twee feel-good movies about white people or gritty kitchen sink dramas so like it's part of the appeal of a film like this to you that it's a different type of British story. Hundred, hundred thousand percent. I completely agree. I think especially having dark skinned black women front and center, I think off you know, oftentimes yeah, the, the, those uh, people who are racialized as black people such as, as myself are seen as only capable of being one thing or, or ex- existing, especially through media, um, through quite like a, a few narrow stereotypes. And so to, to encounter these girls and women in, in this book and realize that they were punk, 80s, grew up in Wales. It was so exciting and refreshing to me because, you know, there are people that don't want to believe that black or brown or whoever that, that these people don't exist in outside of South London <laughs> so like yeah of course of course of course there's going to be Caribbean families of course uh, the RAF meant that there was an internationality that was coming through the UK uh, around that time of course they were into to rock and roll but yeah I think I, I think yeah I think that the the movie 
showed young, sensitive, creative Black women in a way that I had I haven't personally seen before in British film. So that was that was really important to me. Yeah. God, young, sensitive, creative Black women. How we relate to them. <laughs> so, so now we, you've chosen a film to discuss. So I'll just ask you a couple of questions on that before I let you go. And you have gone with one of only three films of the past decade to be included in the greatest ever list for sight and sound. Biffa winning, Oscar winning, modern classic. So tell me, what was it like the first time you saw Moonlight? Yeah, so. I remember being bowled over by the sort of three-part nature of the film. I think I'd never seen, at that point, I'd never seen a movie that had done sort of time jumps in that way. I'd never seen ever a movie that um, centered black male homosexuality. I was rocked to my core by the score. And I also remember being really affected by the color palette as well. And obviously that refrain of in the moonlight, black boys look blue and how blue water and black skin comes as a motif in so many ways and how there is so much sensitivity and intimacy and subtlety in the film so yeah so the first time I ever saw it I went I went with a group of friends I was like blown away and also by the 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 acting obviously I googled it afterwards and apparently they had never um, met little Chiron and Black had never uh yeah had had never met during the filming so to see the through line of that character despite them not actually obviously filming any scenes together but even interacting yeah that was that was um a really really fun fact for me at the time yeah it does seem particularly when it comes to black cinema there is before moonlight and there is after moonlight you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) But I mean, even when it comes to, I know there's, you know, people like Julie Dash, or, you know, lots of people that were kind of working on filming in a way that kind of made black skin actually look radiant and lighting black people correctly. I mean, has that ever been to your experience, the way that Moonlight really took so much care with that? Like, is that something as an actor you've been concerned with that you're not going to be lit quite right? Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, all the time. I've obviously... Not obviously, but unfortunately I've had like racist experiences at work where people make comments about the darkness of my skin and not being able to see me and things like that. You know, that's happened quite a lot from like producers and directors and, you know, other actors and things like that. So I think that also lends itself to the bigger issue of not being seen and mm. uh, or, under- or understood. And so I think to see blackness being portrayed in a way that doesn't have an affinity to something negative is always very important to me because obviously there's a lot of racism and xenophobia built into our language, like the way black, everything black is bad, black male, black ice, black whatever. Black heart, even black, yeah, black heart. A a, a white lie is a good Mm -hmm. lie. I mean, it's like it's like I I think, yeah, to see blackness and dark skin as well be beautiful, very clearly beautiful. That's always always moving to me and affirming, obviously. And yeah, and I love the way, yeah, this film craft wise, it 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 taught me a lot, which. Having watched it again recently, obviously, in, in, in preparation for this, I was also, which is not something I was thinking about then, but thinking more and more about like shots and direction and things like that. And just the silence. That was, that's one of the things that got me about this film as well. There's 
It's not often that filmmakers just give us long shots with very simple choreography, very little dialogue or just silence, just two friends walking or a little boy sitting in the bath or um, someone driving to see the man they've loved for 10 years. I felt it forced the audience to be intimate and to understand and to also reckon with your own discomfort with that level of intimacy as well, to reckon with the sensitivity of touch between two men that we're not allowed to look at, that we're told is repulsive to look at, that we very, very rarely see between black men. And so I've learned a lot from this movie in terms of the way the camera can be used to, to lend itself to the themes and the mood and the emotion. Barry Jenkins is, <laughs> yeah, just did something revolutionary with this movie, which is why, you know, it was so, as you say, it kind of became a one of those paradigm-shifting films that went on to inspire some brave filmmaking afterwards, I think. Yeah, I find myself getting quite emotional listening to you talk about it. It's very... very I cried too. I think I cried for about half an hour after I watched it to the second... No, honestly, I was like, it's so much. Chiron goes, goes through so much. He goes through so much. What? At school, the book, it was relentless. It was relentless. So I, I had to, yeah, I, after the movie, I just thought about how many children are probably going through stuff like this at school with really, really dysfunctional homes and bullying and just like a very distinctive lack of understanding. You know, when he when he, the teacher was telling him off and he just, he cried, he's like, you don't even know. That's all he said. And oh, yeah, that's the language in this movie. Just said, you don't even know. And that relates to so many things. You don't know, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like in so many ways, his, the, the layers of his experience. And then even how Black was like really muscular and really, I just thought it was so clever that this person had obviously spent 10 years like pumping tension, pumping something into his body, like becoming hard because of everything that we'd seen him experience in the past. Yeah, I just think, I, yeah, a seminal, seminal piece of work. I love it. I love it so much. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I love this movie so much. But I, I yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. It's just that kind of somebody can go through so much and at the end we're still left with a world that's so full of beauty. I just maybe I don't even know where the film changed. Maybe just we changed when we saw that film. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. And so in terms of like the future, is there kind of elements maybe from Moonlight that you would like to emulate or kind of uh you know see in your future career yeah definitely basically all of it i might just make a movie called sunlight and just <laughs> hope nobody knows but, remake <laughs> moonlight it's not too soon <laughs> yeah 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 it was like black gay women and uh we're but <laughs> instead of um america we're in like croydon or something but i don't know but like yeah i'd watch like, that yeah well yeah i'm sure i'm sure a lot of people would but um yeah as i said just yeah being really intentional about like the lens and what perspective you want the audience to have not being afraid of intimacy but su- like subtlety as well because there was nothing vulgar or exposing I felt like they protected the children quite well in that film as well because obviously it's a sensitive subject matter and like I don't know how if sexuality was discussed with the the child actors in that way but it it definitely I definitely felt like the roles they played were imbued with all of the right 
feeling but it didn't feel like they were being exploited so that was that was good and I, and I think classical score love it uh would definitely love to use that in work moving forward something uh, like trip types I think like things existing mm-hmm. in three parts I really enjoy I really really enjoy Triangle of Sadness was another movie like that where I was just like oh, yeah so good so so good that's another movie that I could uh, talk at length about I watched that one four times <laughs> no yeah yeah Tomorrow, with all of my friends because- the donkey scene so- I nearly passed out I was <laughs> laughing so hard <laughs> so good everything about that movie everything it's like a notepad my friend said to me I didn't realize the movie could be 15 out of 10 I said I told you (laughs) it's not perfect there's nothing wrong with that film I don't care there's nothing wrong with it it's it's brilliant from the beginning to the end yeah so I I love (laughs) I love things existing in different spaces or different times and allowing the audience to sort of find through line and meaning through that minimal dialogue definitely Mm. I'm definitely as you can tell a bit of an over talker a bit of a tangent a bit of a tangent babe I love it I love I love a tangent honestly I love I love it but yeah I think we like strips back dialogue and how much you can get from no words at all I think always always astounds me yeah and yeah and also talking more about subject matters in communities that maybe people don't want to address like things like homosexuality or um uh, trans issues or human trafficking like things that are not people want to pretend don't happen or don't exist i'm interested in bringing those things to the foreground in ways that are not I don't know like didactic or make the audience feel like oh whatever like the audiences can feel however they want to feel but I I, 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 like that it's to be just intelligent storytelling which I think I would love to be able to get to a place where I can tell a story vicariously whereas at the moment I think I'm not a good enough writer or anything to be able to like say what I would want to say without like saying it (laughs) But I think like be like films like that say what they want to say whilst making you look at that instead. And I think that's really clever. That's just really clever. And I don't, I'm definitely not that clever yet, but I would love to hopefully get to that level of subtlety and also working, I think just collaborating with like amazing people because every the cast were obviously astounding. The directors obviously phenomenal. And I think a lot of brilliant work is also about the people you collaborate with so I hope that I get the opportunity to just work with some more big brains and and see what comes out of it really I hope uh, these big brains get to use your talents too you're so overly modest I think you're incredible and I'm really excited (laughs) to see what you're what you do next thank you you know the last person I spoke to that was this modest was Don Jeebel like he was just like, I don't know, man. I don't know if this acting thing's going to work out. I was just like, Don Jeebel, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was just like, it's been we like 40 you. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What more, more proof do you need? <laughs> yeah, that is so funny. A lot of people have it, though, I'm sure, in lots of the different types. You know that thing? Well, yeah, imposter syndrome, right? Where you just like, am I just secretly really bad at this <laughs> nobody's <laughs> telling nobody's being honest but yeah thank you thank you for your 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 kind words thank you all right hopefully i will see you at a biffers or at a press junket or something soon but yeah thank you so much for your time 
Oh, so for those people that have been living under rocks, Karis, what is Moonlight about? So Moonlight is about a young African-American boy who finds guidance in Juan, who is a drug dealer, and teaches him how to carve his own path. He grows up in Miami and his advice leaves a lasting impression on him. People, even if you haven't watched the film or know anything about it, I am sure you will remember it because of... Moonlight Gate, is that what we're calling it? La La Land Gate, mm-hmm. where it was snubbed famously um, for best film at the Oscars. They mispresented it to La La Land and then halfway through realised they got it wrong. And it was an incredible moment of television that we all watched behind our behind our hands. So, yeah, but it did actually win the Oscar and it's, it's a fabulous movie and I am obsessed with Barry Jenkins as a director. So, yeah, he's amazing. I am truly obsessed with Barry Jenkins, but I also have to not underplay the heroism of that producer from La La Land who just (laughs) took control of the situation and was just like, we did not win. Best picture, Moonlight. And then was so gracious in that moment when, you know, they were just like, oh my God, we're really sorry. Your dreams came true and we're about to take them away from you. And he was just like, I am really happy to present this Oscar to our friends at Moonlight. So... Whatever he's up to, I hope he's... I hope he's well. Yeah, Yeah. he's He's doing great things. Such a crazy TV moment, because it's one of those things that's so awkward that you're like, I wish I could look away, but I just can't. And I just, yeah, you just can't believe that something like that could have actually happened. But the interviews of kind of like Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling and Damien Chazelle afterwards, I think they all just found it absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I think they were all really happy at the Moonlight one. Um, I mean, as the rest of the world. But yeah, this is such a fantastic film. It's um, 2017, so it's already, what, five years old? Which is crazy. And I think that Tamara, she really highlights so many things that I think all of us love about the film really well. She kind of talks about how she loves the structure, the three-part structure of the film. And for her, it was one of the first times that she'd seen that crafted so well on screen. The beauty of the score, which is delightful, and I love it. And of course, the colour palette and these kind of recurring motifs as well. But I think, you know, the core of this and why it felt so special is this kind of exploration of black masculinity and tenderness and fragility that I do think we just do not see on screen enough. Yeah, it was just done with such care and nuance that um, just makes it a really special film and a a great watch. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I kind of can't understate how I feel like my life existed before Moonlight and after Moonlight. And just weirdly, I mean, I know it's kind of a little bit dry and on the technical side, but like, I'm so invested in seeing black skin lit well it's something that's so important to me i mean you only have to like look at the coming to america extra dvd features and you'll discover the reason that that bride is wearing a pink dress is that they couldn't figure out how to light eddie murphy next to white and you know the history of emulsion of all of these things is so good to just kind of film was designed to capture white skin so all of these people from like Heidi Garama to a to a Julie Dash to a Barry Jenkins to a Steve McQueen like they always had to be so innovative to just make it so black people on screen weren't just like eyes and teeth and like from what I understand in Barry Jenkins he was very inspired by this Brazilian tradition where it's just like we're not going to powder you 
we're going to cover you in Vaseline. We're going to moisturize the hell out of you. And you're just going to have this otherworldly radiance. And you see that in films like City of God, the, the, all of these kind of amazing older Brazilian films where they nailed it. And like, ah, and then and again in, in, in Moonlight, everybody's just like got this otherworldly, gorgeous glow to them. It's just, it's so stunning. That is so fascinating. I didn't realize that that's the history of Barry Jenkins' filmmaking technique, but it makes a lot of sense rewatching the movie. And it's something that on film has, yeah, it's it's long been a problem. And I remember, this is obviously not film, but recently on the Vogue covers that Edward Ennefeld did and the lighting of black skin and that being a very kind of heavily debated issue as well. It's something that is almost shocking that we're still having that issue or that it needs to be such a big topic of discussion in, in 2023 when we've had black people on camera for years and years and years and decades. So no, I completely agree. And it's great to see black people and black skins so celebrated because, you know, we obviously had this conversation a lot, but so often it's in a torturous way and it's nice to see it depicted differently. I mean, yeah, outlaw Annie Leibovitz from, uh, <laughs> from photographing People. my god because it's capable you know that's it's one of those things i think becomes difficult because it's like you know people la rebellion people in the sort of 70s like they solved these problems they figured out ways to do this you can like people correctly you can do it and it just feels that like people continue to not bother and that's um very depressing but i mean th there's so much to get into when it comes to the larger blockbusters and the way that like they don't bother to light things the way we end up with this kind of like sludgy gray brownie nonsense and then you get these wonderful kind of smaller budget independent films that just they take the time they take the care and they're able to do what hundred million dollar films just don't seem to be bothered to achieve yeah and i think that just really shows unfortunately a level of ignorance that there still is within the industry and I don't know how that gets fixed apart from obviously hiring more people of colour <laughs> <laughs> it seems simple but it's true and yeah but I think Barry Jenkins as a director will always be really celebrated for not just how he spotlights people of colour on screen but just generally the colour palette obviously what's the other one that he did recently If Beale Street Could Talk is another where the colour palette is just amazing and that kind of the, the colour grading and just it makes it so visually stunning um, as a film and obviously Moonlight's exactly the same I mean, and the Underground Railroad for me, which I just thought was an absolute masterpiece. The it's so interesting because it's like almost the color palette changes every episode to kind of reflect the kind of new state that the character is in, and it, it's so gorgeous to see. But I don't know, I, I, not to end things on a down note, but like, Karis, how do you feel about that? Barry Jenkins's next project is a live action remake of the Lion King sequel. <laughs> No, it's not. I actually did not know this. You didn't know that? No, that is so left field from him. Mm-hmm. As in The Lion King, because I'm actually going to be quite controversial here. There was a time where if you'd asked me, I would have said that The Lion King 2 was better than the first one. The Lion King 2's soundtrack is it's, fantastic. It's so good. It's so, And I think that people forget because, for example, He Lives In You, everyone always thinks is in the first Lion King. It's mm -mm. not, guys. 
It's in Lion King 2, and it's an amazing song. Okay, well, I have increasingly bad news. So it is... <laughs> it's not that. So it? what not. he is directing is a sequel to The Lion King, which is not, I believe, a remake of The Lion King 2. So I do not believe that we get those songs. That's but, heartbreaking. Yes. The thing that I am concerned about is I believe that most of us watching a lot of Disney films growing up found ourselves attractive to things that are a little bit taboo. A lot of us were very attracted to the beast, but not so much when he turned into a man. A lot of us were attracted to the fox version of Robin Hood. And who is better than sensuality and romance than Barry Jenkins? So I worry he's going to awaken a lot of very weird attraction to lions. Unearthing a lot of repressed feelings that I had as like a 10 year old child. So it's not even going to be the same characters because in Lion King 2 it's Kovu. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was Kovu. Yeah, Lion King 2 is essentially, well I guess if Lion King 1 is Hamlet, Lion King 2 is Romeo and Juliet. I think that this is a new story that is just a continuation of Lion King 1. Apologise if this wrong. I'm pretty sure that's the case, though. <laughs> Hashtag fake news. No, yeah, that's that's very interesting. That's very, very interesting. Because, yeah, no, I definitely was very, um, very attracted to those characters as a child. <laughs> so yeah. we'll see. We'll see how Barry Jenkins does, does with that. But um, that is very interesting as a, as a choice for him mm-hmm. to, to do that next. Is it the same team as the original Lion King? The, whenever it was, the 2018? The John Favreau? Yeah. God, I hope not. I did see a kind of interview with him where he was saying, just like, hey, I spoke to John Favreau when he gave me this advice and I was just like, Barry Jenkins, you're a genius. Do not take Don't advice take from it. John Favreau. <laughs> Don't take it. <laughs> Whatever he says, do the opposite. <laughs> Go with your instincts because this is one of our, I don't even want to say he's one of our great black filmmakers. He is one of the greatest filmmakers that is currently alive. Maybe the Lion King 2 live action remake is gonna be a masterpiece. I hope it is for everyone involved, truly. Because I don't think Barry has it in him to make a misstep. Does he? No, no, he doesn't. No, I, I refuse to imagine I refuse that to world. believe. Wow, that is really interesting though. I did not know. Do we know when it's um when it's coming out? Absolutely. Not something I'm counting down to with like... <laughs> And is he doing any other TV in the meantime? Or this is like his main project now? This is his main project. And, you know, hey, you know, often in kind of this world of show business and film, they say you do one for love and one for money. And if this is the one he does for money and then the next one we're going to get for love, I would not begrudge him one second for that. But yes, I will be very, very excited to see what he does after that. (laughs) (laughs) Once that's done. What's next? Yeah, in very interesting oh it's also worth saying just hopping very quickly back to to moonlight that i feel like that was also the film that really transported mahershala ali's career not that he was like he was already a pretty big star at that point but it feels like his star catapulted after that is that fair to say i would put to you karis that that did not happen okay no in a way, really? obviously, Mahershala Ali, huge, huge star in many regrets, got two Oscars, right? Yeah. Mahershala Ali has been a lead in exactly one film since then, and that was a small Apple Plus kind of sci-fi yeah, thing. Yeah, where he and plays he's like only two versions supported. of himself. Exactly. That's the only time he's been in a lead. He was then slated to be in the next Blade. That has been cancelled. I would put to you a person of a different race 
having gotten two Best Supporting Acting Oscars, would not have been a lead in a single small-budget, straight-to-VOD film. And I would also put to you that I was a huge, huge fan of Summer of Soul, or where the revolution would not be televised, Quest Loves Film, uh, which won an Academy Award, very, very much deserved. Guess what his next project is? The live-action remake of The Aristocats. Oh, my God. I can't deal with the information that you're giving me today. My I'm brain can't handle it. The pipeline <laughs> to from acclaimed black Oscar winning director to Disney live action remake is much. a curious one. <laughs> you know, with Mahershala, what I will say is he did Moonlight, but then he did Green Book. That was the nail for him. And, well, but and he was the supporting actor in this because apparently Driving Miss Daisy is a vibe that we must continue into the modern day. Do you know what I mean? Like, the fact that he did those two movies back to back is just wild to me. But anyway, Moonlight is fantastic and I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it. And it's on BBC iPlayer, so it's oh, free. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. that's great. Truly in the spirit of independent film and egalitarian access. If you haven't seen it, watch it. And if you have watched it, watch it again. It just gets, it gets better. You notice more details every time. It's incredible. Yeah. Be prepared to have your heart broken and then put back together again and then broken. <laughs> Biffa celebrates, promotes and supports independent filmmaking and filmmakers in the UK. Keep up to date with the latest releases and exciting names in an independent film by following Biffa on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube and Twitter. This podcast was produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 